open our Bibles, if you would, please, please to Philippians chapter 1. And uh, I'm back on this excitable subject for me tonight. So bear with me. Sometimes I get too excited, I can't get all the words out straight. But uh, hopefully we'll get it all out here tonight. And I'm going to save the introduction for just a minute. So let's stand up. We're going to go right into the Scripture reading tonight. Find Philippians chapter 1. I hope that you're already there. And we're going to start reading at verse number 1. Verse number 6 is our text verse. So let's start at one, verse 1 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, special verse of Scripture that you've given us. And Lord, there's so much depth of meaning here. I, I just pray, Lord, you'd open this up to us and help us to understand it better. Bless in the message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's look at that sixth verse again. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. What we're discussing tonight is perhaps one of the most important verses of Scripture in the Bible. Um, Certainly it is the most, probably the most important verse in Philippians because this is what we've already called the key verse. And you'll understand that a little bit better as we get on through the book, why we're going to come back to this verse probably over and over again and see that this verse is the very foundation of everything that Paul says in this book. And it's the hope and the confidence of the Christians that he ministered to. It's just a wonderful verse. It's a very important verse, and I said a key verse, but unfortunately the doctrine that's contained in this verse is misapplied and misunderstood by many Baptists today. Now, Paul here is talking about perseverance. That's the doctrine that's taught in this verse. And yet, there there are just so many Baptists that don't even recognize the truth of this. And many of them say that there's not even a Bible doctrine of perseverance at all. And what they do is they substitute a word wrongly for this teaching. And our old Baptist confessions of faith confirm it. They like to use the word preservation, which is fine. Except the real doctrine that's taught here is perseverance. And perseverance comprehends preservation. Both of them are Bible doctrines. And as much as God wants us to, or will preserve us in our faith, God also causes us to persevere in faith. Now, to be more fair about this than our people who oppose the doctrine are to us, let me just say that their objections are founded upon a misunderstanding of what the word actually means. Now, if perseverance meant what they say that it means, then we wouldn't believe in perseverance either. But here's what they think. They mistakenly believe that perseverance means that we think we're saved by our good works and that we can never be assured of our salvation. But I don't know of anybody that I've ever read who who has written on the doctrines of grace who accepts that kind of definition for perseverance. According to the old Baptist confession standards of faith, and even of non-Baptists who believe the very same doctrine, that is not what perseverance means. 
Now, what we believe that the teaching of perseverance is, is that God requires us to persevere in the faith. We're to live holy, dedicated, consecrated lives. We're expected to continue in our faith and never to depart from that faith. But the power to do that doesn't rest in us. The power is through God alone. And that's why Peter says that we're kept by the power of God through faith. So it's God's power that allows us to persevere, and it's because we completely rely upon God's power that we're ever going to be assured of our salvation. Now, it's true that there are Christians that will lose assurance of their salvation. Sometimes if they'll, they'll enter into sin, they'll get away from God, they fall away, it seems, for a time, but there is never a Christian who in his life will ever come to a place that, that he'll so sin that he could finally lose his salvation. That is not going to happen. And so even though we might fall into many heinous sins, even as David fell into sin, we're never going to lose our relationship with God. And the fact that we do persevere is evidence of our saving faith. So that tells us if we have a person who doesn't finally persevere, then that's an evidence or is the evidence that he had no real attachment to Christ. He really never had saving faith. He didn't possess that. So that's what we call the real teaching of the doctrine of perseverance. And I'll just tell you right now, for anybody that might be listening out there over the internet or anything else, there is no excuse to misidentify this doctrine. It's, it's written so clearly in our historic confessions of faith that there's no reason to misunderstand what it means. So go to the source if you want to find out. Go back to what our Baptist forefathers believed that it meant. So God preserves, but he also expects his children to persevere. No Christian is ever going to sit down and expect that God will preserve me while I sit here and do nothing. That's not the teaching of Scripture either. James said, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. That's how we know that people are Christians. Now, our discussion last week in part number one of the lesson started with the beginning of the work. And that's a good place to start. Always start at the beginning. And the beginning was begun by God. Paul came to Philippi, and when he preached there, he was not the one who started the work in Philippi. I'm talking about not the one who started a work of salvation in the people. There were good people that Paul went to preach there, at least as the world might see it. They were very devout and religious people. You have a convert there like Lydia, for instance, who met with ladies and they discussed the Scriptures in the Word of God, but their salvation did not begin with them. Salvation began with God. God's the one who started the work, and God is the one who opened up their hearts to the gospel. In fact, all of these believers, as believers are today, all of us are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and so in no respect could anyone ever think that anyone but God is the author of salvation. God planned it in the past. But there are some things that have to take place in the present in order for us to to be saved, in order for us to come to Christ. And that's what we talked about last week. We talked about three things that have to happen for a person to actually come to Christ. The first one is that we have to be awakened to our condition. So this is what God does. He comes to us. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, spiritually dead. We're unaware of the awfulness of our sin. We're not aware of the consequences of the spiritual death that we're in. And so what God must do, he must come to us and start a regenerating work in our heart, enable us to come to life so that we can recognize the condition that we're in. The second thing that has to happen is that desire is created. 
You see, once we're brought to life, the desire for God has to be created. Because even though we've been awakened to our sin, we still don't know what to do about it. We realize there's something wrong and we can't do anything about it. We implore God to help us with this, but we yet don't yet understand what is wrong. Now we've just got the desire to, to do something about that sinful condition. And so the third thing that God has to do, he has to make a revelation of Christ. God must show Christ to us, and Christ is our only hope. And when the work of Christ is opened up before us, and God makes us to realize and understand what Jesus has done, then we gladly, in that glorious moment of revelation, we gladly come to Jesus Christ, believing in him for salvation. Now, as I told you last week, I'm not talking about something that happens over long periods of time. Everything that I've described to you, those three things happen in a split second. Now, the preparation for the work, God uh, convicting with the Holy Spirit may take longer, but in the moment of salvation, it's it's a a split second that can't be measured. All of those things are taking place. And it all started with God. And that's because we're spiritually dead and have to be brought into a spiritual life. And so God creates that desire in us, and then he reveals Christ as our only hope. That's how the work begins. Now, as I see it, Most of us are are really concerned with the results more than we are concerned about what's going on in the background here and what's taking place. We're thinking, once I was lost, but now I'm saved, and we really don't care too much about how we got from where we were to where we are right now. And most Christians are content to stay in that condition. I'm saved, and the rest of what happened really doesn't matter to me. Remember a few years ago, I was at home and I was studying in my office, There were two very nice young men who came to my door to speak with me. They knocked on the door and told me who they were. And uh, they were from a Baptist church that was very close to us. And I knew already what this Baptist church believed. One of these men was late 50s, early 60s. The other maybe 35, 40 years old. And one of them was a deacon in the church. Well, as I said, I already knew what they believed, so, you know, I told them I was a Christian. I thanked them for coming, and I asked them to come in. And uh, my purpose was that we would sit down, and we talk a little bit about the doctrines that their church believed, and we just kind of spur some discussion, you know, about the Word of God. No ulterior motives here, of course. <laughs> but what I discovered was that the deacon that I was talking to knew practically nothing about any doctrines. Now, he could sit there and he could give a soul-winning presentation and he, he knew the scriptures that went along with that, but he knew practically nothing else than that soul-winning presentation. Well, I, I, uh, I commend these people for their zeal. Thank God for their zeal. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But at the same time, I'm very saddened for them because their pastor did not take time to show them doctrine, help develop their understanding of what takes place in salvation. In the middle 90s, our church back in Kentucky hired a young man who was right out of Bible college. We asked him to come and be our youth director. And uh, he was a fine young man. Uh, To this day, I really appreciate him. I love him. He was just a great young man. He had a lot of zeal. But he came right out of Bible college, and he didn't know very much at all about any doctrines in God's Word. He knew about salvation, like most Christians do. He could present that very well. He was good at it, but he knew practically nothing about doctrine. I could tell you what college that he was from, and you would recognize the name. I won't. It was just in Indiana near Chicago. That's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> but, but one of our deacons took this young man aside and uh, 
he was trying to help him, and so he handed him a book that's called Rethinking Baptist Doctrine. If you're interested in it, you can get it from the same place that we order the trail of blood. The, ba- the book is called Rethinking Baptist Doctrine. So he wanted to give this to the young man, but the young man refused to take it. And he said, I already know what I believe, and I don't need to rethink it. And what he was actually saying was, I've been to Bible college. But he didn't know very much at all about the Word of God at all. So here was a man who was trying to help him, but that, that young man refused his help because he thought he knew everything he needed to know at that point. Well, I hope he knows better than that now. I say he's a fine young man. But that's the way many Christians are. They know this doctrine. They know how to be saved because it happened to them. And obviously, if you're a Christian, you know how you got saved. They know that doctrine, but they don't know very much about what's behind it all. There's some things that take place behind the scenes rather than just the simple thing of believing in Jesus Christ. It's wonderful that you're saved, but our purpose here is to tell you more than you're just saved. You need to know some more things about it. So we're going to talk about that next. It's a huge subject, and we're just going to take a little time to talk about a few things tonight. The second thing here is the background of the work. What's going on? God begins the work. But it's not like God just threw together a plan one day and on a whim he decided that he was going to create heaven and then he needed some people to populate heaven. So he put this plan together real fast, you know. Well, you know, I've heard this so many times. I mean, there are preachers that tell these tear-jerking stories about how that God was lonely in heaven And one day God just sat down and he was so sad because he was lonely and he just put his head in his hands and he said, what am I going to do? I'm just so sad and I'm so lonely. Then they go on and they tell about how God created you and you're God's companion. But they don't stop there. Now they go on with the story of what happened with Adam and Eve. Now they're going to tell you how God created Adam and then Adam disobeyed. And God was really sad because Adam disobeyed. Because here are the ones that he created to be his companions. They were naughty. They did bad things. And although he loved them so much, they didn't love him back. Oh, but the story didn't stop there. It goes on. Next, God had to decide how to fix all of this. And so he sent his son because God wants to be happy again and he wants all of his creatures to be happy. And God doesn't want to force you to be happy he wants you to be happy, but he's not going to force you to. He, doesn't, he wants you to believe in him, but he's not going to force you. He wants you to believe in him because you want to. But God is still so sad about all of these things. And so God is up in heaven. He's crying. And every raindrop that falls is God crying because his companions don't really love him as they should. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. God is not some sentimental old fool who says, I did my best, but things just didn't turn out the way that I want. I wish, I wish that I could do something more to get people to love me. I don't want people to go to hell, but people just don't understand. I'm so good to them, and they're so mean to me. Sounds silly, doesn't it? But when you distill down 90% of all preaching today... That's the story that you're going to get. Maybe not told in exactly the way I said it, but the outcome is, basically, humans are in control, God's doing all he can, but he won't let us save him, and we won't let him fix things. Somebody needs to go back and rethink Baptist doctrine, because that's not the truth of God's word. And what God 
is doing something and God has a plan and purpose for the world and what, and what we think about it, whatever God's doing, really doesn't matter at all. It all depends on what God thinks about it. Now, what about this background of God's work? What's, what's going on here? Well, it goes way back before the foundation of the world. It has nothing at all to do with God being lonely. God is supremely happy in himself. God chose us. God created. He chose us. He, he does all the works that are in the world for one purpose, to bring glory to him. And he doesn't do anything without that singular motivation. It's all to bring glory to him. So that tells us it was never about you, and it was never about me. It was always about God. That was the full intention. He did all of this to bring glory to himself. But the gist of preaching today is that God is a failure. Now, I don't mean they preach sermons entitled, God is a failure. Obviously, they don't. But really, that's the theme of their messages because they're teaching people that God cannot accomplish his work. What God starts, he can't finish. But Paul's talking here in this verse, he's telling us that whatever God does start, God will always finish. So what happens if, 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 if uh, God doesn't finish his work? Well, there's some things that are going on in the background. Some things that are happening, happening that would change if God could not finish his work. Now, the first one I want to talk to you about is the attributes of God. The attributes of God would have to completely change if God doesn't finish his work. Let's think about this work. What about omnipotence? If God can't finish his work, then his attribute of omnipotence is in peril. His ability as the almighty God is lost. And so every atheist, every agnostic, every devil can point his finger in the face of God and say, what an old fool you are. What a dried up old shriveled fool that you are because you said that you could, but you can't. Another one, his omniscience is in peril. What he thought he could accomplish, he couldn't do. So something went seriously wrong. I mean, in the planning stages, God had it all planned out, but something went wrong. Adam sinned. Who would have thunk it? Adam sinned. So God says, what am I going to do now? And have you ever read in the Bible where God said, well, if I'd known that, I'd have done things differently. God, God was well apprised that Adam was going to sin. He knew it was going to happen. Then what about God's grace? Well, God's grace is in peril if God can't finish his work. If he can't complete his work, it means that sin is greater than God's grace. And if God doesn't finish the work, it means sin is powerful, more powerful than grace. What about God's love? Doesn't the Bible say God is love? That's a defining attribute. God is love. The Scripture says that. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, and we've studied it on Sunday morning, that love will never fail. You know what that tells me? If one person is lost that God began a work in, it means that his love fails. If one person that God decided to save is not saved, his love fails. Most preachers don't have a problem with that. I mean, they'll all agree with me on that. They tell people all the time, God loves you, so why don't you let him save you? Well, if God loves you and he can't save you, then his attributes are meaningless. He fails. Then what about God's truth? One of his attributes, God is, God's truthful, his truth. Well, so if one person ever went to hell for whom Christ died, God didn't tell the truth. Jesus said that God loves you the same way that the Father loves me. And so if he loves us the same way, how, is God's, uh, how could God tell the truth? If there's one person for whom Christ died that went to hell, 
He said, all that the Father hath given me will come to me. So you figure out how God's telling the truth and how Jesus is telling the truth if that doesn't happen. So God's attributes are at stake. But there's more. I mean, there's, there's more attributes we could talk about. And you could list every single attribute of God. And if he ever fails to complete his work, none of his attributes can be true about him. Now, here's the thing that people really need to understand. God has not left salvation up to the fallible, puny man who makes mistakes all the time and he's upside down and has proven himself to be a failure. God is not going to leave that up to us. Adam, you remember him? Adam didn't choose God when he was perfect. Did you know that? He was a perfect man, created in innocence, and he did not choose to follow God. What in the world makes anybody think that an imperfect man, sinners that we are, would ever choose God? We can't do it. Only God can start the work in it. So so behind all of this is the sovereignty, and God is not going to, the sovereignty of God, he's not going to leave this up to a depraved creature. So God's attributes are at stake. But let's go further, something else here. Second thing goes beyond, it's going on here, is the atonement of Christ. If God doesn't complete his work, then the atonement of Christ is meaningless. So what did Jesus do in the atonement? The atonement was for the purpose of satisfying the justice and the penalty of God for sin. Christ's atonement means that Christ vicariously took upon himself the sins of men, and he took the penalty that we would have to suffer. So what the atonement actually means then is that Christ did something, And what he did was to suffer hell for somebody. He suffered hell for somebody. Now, the modern Baptist belief, not the one that we find in the historic confessions of faith, not the ones that that our Baptist forefathers believed, but the modern Baptist belief is that Jesus suffered hell for every individual who ever lived and that Jesus literally paid their penalty or paid the penalty for every last sin that was ever committed. And so the modern belief of Baptists today is that there are people in hell today for whom Christ has paid for their sins. And so if you go to hell, it's not because Christ didn't pay for your sins, because he did. Jesus came to earth, and he threw this great big blanket over everybody. He said, I'm going to take care of it all. And so Jesus died, and he paid the sins of people who were many already in hell at the very time that he died. 4,000 years of human history had already passed, and they're telling us that Jesus died to pay for the sins of people that were already in hell at the time that he died. Not only is that a problem, but Jesus is an omniscient God. And if he's not, then he can't be God. And if he's omniscient God, he knew before he went to the cross the names of every single person who would be in heaven and the names of every person who would be in hell, the names of every person who would ever live. And so are we saying now that Jesus, knowing all this information, still paid the hell for people who are in hell? And yet that's the modern belief. So if it's true that Jesus paid the sins for all people in hell, what does that mean about the atonement? it means that the atonement failed. And it failed because it didn't accomplish what it was designed to do. So if I ask you, what is the atonement designed to do? It's designed to keep people out of hell. But there are people in hell. So the atonement failed, therefore. Wouldn't that be right? That's the way it seems to me. So according to them, God started the work of atonement, but for millions and billions of people, he never finished it. Jesus said on the cross... It is finished. 
But evidently, according to many of our Baptist brethren today, it is finished does not mean it's finished. There has to be something else that's done in order to get people to heaven. It can't be just what Christ did on the cross. So do you see what I mean here? The atonement must accomplish its design or the atonement fails. So what we have to decide here now then is we must be wrong about the design of the atonement then. There must be something wrong with our thinking about that. What is the atonement designed to do? It's intended to save, designed to save. And so if it doesn't save all men, then it was never intended to save all men. God, in his infinite wisdom, designed his atonement to save his people. And Jesus could not have said it more clearly when he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. But here's the problem. Many people are still stuck with this idea that that God wants to do something that he actually can't do. God's lonely, and he'd really like to take everybody to heaven, but we're just not going to let him do it. We just won't let him. If you could ever get this into your head, get it into your mind that whatever God allows to come to pass is ultimately for his glory, then you'll have it figured out that God already had it all worked out before he ever created the first thing. God knew all of it. God had a plan for it. It's already worked out in the mind of God. So God did not begin anything without knowing what the end of that work would be. The Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 put out a great statement. You know, there are a lot of councils that came down through church history. And uh, the Jerusalem Council, one of the the very first one, made an amazing statement. And you know what they said? Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. We may not know the end of God's work. And God doesn't see fit to tell us everything about the end of his work. And what he does may not always fit our design, but it fits his design. And there's no preacher, there's nobody else who's going to change what God says because we are not in charge. What God starts, he finishes. And if nothing else, we ought to see it this way, that he finishes it in the way that he designed to do it. Now, let's go on. What else is at stake if if God can't finish his work? What's going on in the background? Well, the next thing is the justification of the believer. To the Philippians, Paul says, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, let's substitute for a moment the word justification in that place. He which hath begun justification in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. Once you're justified, the Scripture teaches you are justified forever. Now, that's perseverance as plainly as it could be taught. You will persevere because you have been justified from all of your sins. And so what happens then if one justified person goes to hell? Well, it means that God's justification is not as powerful as the devil's condemnation. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not trying to tell you that the devil is the one who condemns you and that God is trying to save you from the devil's condemnation. You know, a lot of people are mixed up about that. I mean, I mean, they think that the devil is in charge of hell and the devil's the one who sends you to hell. The devil's not in charge of hell, never has been. The person who sends or the one who sends people to hell is God himself. But the devil is this. Scripture teaches that he is the accuser of the brethren. And so if a justified person could go to hell, that would mean that the devil's accusation is stronger than God's justification. But I want to remind you of a verse that Paul gave us in Romans chapter 8. He said, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? 
Listen to that word elect in that sentence because you know what it is? It's one and the same that God began a good work in and one and the same that God's going to continue that good work in. So, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, Paul says. And it's equivalent of saying, if God has justified... And if God has dissolved the obligation for punishment that comes by the, by the uh, breaking of God's law, if God has justified from that, then who is bigger than God that can nullify God's justification? And the answer, of course, is nobody. And then you know the scripture, how Paul goes on there in Romans chapter 8, and he talks about all these different things that can never separate us from the love of Christ. And the conclusion is, after that long, long list, nothing can separate us from God. And so that work is going on, that justification of the believer. It's a, now, justification, again, don't misunderstand me here. Justification is a one-time event. It happens when you get saved. You are justified from your sin. But the justification sticks. It doesn't stop. God started the work and God finishes the work. Now, here's a fourth thing that's going on. Going on at the same time that, that a believer comes to Jesus Christ and what goes on through his life, and that is the intercession of the Son. Did you know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, that right now God is in heaven speaking to the Heavenly Father about you? How many of you had one evil thought today? Oh, we're honest. I'm not going to ask you what it is. Don't be afraid about that. All right, we've all had an evil thought. I'm not going to tell you what my evil thought was today. It could be that I was going to choke some church members, so I'm not going to tell you what that one was. But every time that you have an evil thought, Christ is right there in heaven with intercession. And what he says to the Heavenly Father is, there's that thought, or even there is that action. And he says, Heavenly Father, forgive him for that. Don't condemn him for that, because I paid for that sin. That's the intercession of the Son of God in heaven. Now, let's suppose for just a minute that sin stopped this good work that God's doing, and now the good work is interrupted, and God can't finish that good work. I don't want to be irreverent, but this, would be, this is what would happen. This is kind of like what would happen, that when Jesus speaks to the Heavenly Father and says, don't condemn him for that sin, the Heavenly Father says, shut your mouth, and he slaps Jesus right across the face. Could that happen? No, that can't happen. The Son intercedes, and the Heavenly Father knows that this is His own precious Son that actually satisfied Him for the sins that have been committed. So the Son gave His life to pay for that sin, and so God is satisfied. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons why, that for every person that God has been satisfied for their sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they must go to heaven. Every last person for whom Christ died must be in heaven because the Father is satisfied for their sins. That goes right back to what we were talking about in the atonement. So when Jesus intercedes for you, that means God will be satisfied. So this good work goes on all the time, and Jesus is not going to let anyone stop it. He's ever interceding, just like that song says, and he's ever interceding to the Father for his children. So these are things that are at stake. I mean... God, if God can't complete his work, we have the attributes of God, the atonement of Christ, justification of believers, the intercession of Christ. All of that stops. If God cannot finish his work, it all stops. Now, let me remind you of this also, that we're talking about a work that began in eternity past. It is a work that goes on in the present, and it's a work that will be completed in the future. 
But I want to give you one more thing that's happening, that's going on right now if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and why God cannot stop his work. They say, well, that's enough. We don't need to know anymore. No, you need to know some more. You need to know why else, what's going on. Here's another thing, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's going on in you right now. And you know what it means? If God's good work stops, it means that the Holy Spirit has to move out. I don't know what people are thinking when they say that you could lose your salvation because they're saying the Holy Spirit must move out or else the Holy Spirit is going to go to hell with you. That's not going to happen. The Holy Spirit is not moving out. And we've talked about it many times. I know that you're aware of it. The very moment that you get saved, that's when the Holy Spirit moves into your spiritual house. In the book of Ephesians, the Scripture says that God has given us the Holy Spirit as a seal. It's God's guarantee that not only will He redeem the soul and the spirit, but God will also redeem the body. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 30, it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, if you've got your Bible open there to Philippians 1, verse 6, read that again. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ and the day of redemption are the one and the same thing. So God's going to complete the work. God keeps it going. So one day you got saved, the Holy Spirit moved in. He's not moving out until the day of redemption. And so God continues to work in you. He's always there. He's keeping you. And oddly enough, for all these preachers who do not believe in perseverance, that is exactly what the Holy Spirit is accomplishing in you. He's causing you to persevere because He lives in you and He can't move out. So the Holy Spirit is there every single day. But if the good work stops, he has to move out. Let me tell you something about the Holy Spirit. He's not a freeloader. If he quits working, he doesn't stay. It's like your dad when you were a teenager. He said, if you're going to live in my house, you better get a job. And you get to stay if you work. Well, the Holy Spirit is always working, so he's not moving out. The only way the Holy Spirit could ever move out of you if somebody bigger comes along and makes him move out. And there's nobody that's bigger than the Holy Spirit. Now, understand also that we have this. We have a promise that's made here. In Ephesians 4, verse 30, and in Philippians 1, verse 6, there's a promise. God sent the Holy Spirit as a promise. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to abide with you forever. But there's some people who think that, well, forever is not really a very long time. Because when you sin, then the Holy Spirit's going to move out of you. Well, I'm going to sum it all up, and we're getting down to the end here. But if you think that about God... And if you can turn around here and look at the things that I've talked to you about tonight and say, those things aren't true, those things aren't happening, God's not doing that, you don't serve the same God as I serve. We're talking about two entirely different gods here. If if your God can't do what I say that my God does, if he can't fulfill Philippians 1 verse 6 in these ways that I said he fulfills it, then he's not the same God that we're serving. But God does this in fact. My God always finishes what he starts. So he started way back in the beginning, before there was ever time, because he's the one who invented time, and that was the beginning to him. That was the beginning to him, when he started that work before the foundation of the world. But the beginning to me is the very day that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, touched me, that he put his finger upon me, he regenerated me, brought me to life, and gave me the ability, enabled me to believe in him. That's the beginning for me. 
And Paul says, that work is not going to stop. God will finish what he starts. Now, I want to give you one more passage that covers everything that I've just said, all those steps, past, present, future. Do you know there's one scripture that covers it all? I know you do, because we gave it many times. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. There are the steps, past, present, future. For whom he did foreknow. That was in the past. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And that's really what's taking place in the present. God called us to our salvation. And whom he called, them he also justified. We talked about justification. And whom he justified, he takes on into the future because it says they are also glorified. Them he also glorified. That is total perseverance. That's what the doctrine is. Past, present, future, we persevere. God brought it to pass, and he makes sure that we're going to get all the way through from eternity past when he, when he decided to do it until we get to heaven in the future. God's in control of this entire process. And if that's not the God you serve, you serve a different one that's in this Bible. But we're not finished with this subject yet. We've got another lesson to go on. We're going to talk some more about it. Next week, Brother Doug Gamble will be here, so we're going to skip it. Two weeks, we're coming back, and on Wednesday night, we're going to talk some more about God's unfailing good work. And I hope you see why I say that Philippians 1, verse 6 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Get it down, and it'll clear up a whole lot of your misunderstandings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for the God that you are, the almighty God who started in the the past before this world was ever created you put a plan together you you organized it all and you made that plan work in the present for us and you will bring that plan to its full fruition when we get into glory we thank you lord for that we thank you for the great god that you are in jesus name we pray amen let's